Good morning. I hope you guys don't think I'm going to sing. Not after that. Uh, just in case you guys didn't know, um, Brother Anthon and Marissa are actually accomplished paleontologists. Uh, if you do not know what I'm talking about, uh, you missed a great conference yesterday with Dr. Thomas Woodward. Uh, just going to introduce him right now. Uh, Dr. Woodward is a research professor and the department chair of theology department at Trinity College in Florida, and he's a prominent Christian apologist. I uh, took the liberty to go on his website, and I realized that he still looks the same. I told him this on Friday. He still looks the same from the 80s as he does today. So uh, Sister Normandy, his lovely wife, has been feeding him well and treating him good. Uh, Dr. Woodward has published widely defending intelligent design and refuting Darwin's theory of evolution. Since 1988, he has been the director of Trinity College's Center for University Ministries. He's also maintained an evangelical teaching and discipleship ministry and has been head of the C.S. Lewis Society, which is housed at Trinity College. He's done his doctoral work in the Department of Communication at the University of South Florida, and his thesis, A History of Intelligent Design Movement, was published by Baker Books as Doubts About Darwin in 2003. Darwin Strikes Back was released in 2006 and the mysterious epigenome, What Lies Beyond DNA in 2011. And he's also an accomplished um, composer of music. Um, he taught me a new alphabet as well. Um, I'm sure he'll do it for you guys later, so I don't want to sing it for you. So prior to this, uh, Dr. Woodward has served uh, with UFM, a missionary organization now known as Crossworld in the Dominican Republic. He has a BA in history awarded by Princeton University and has a Master of Theology and Systematic Theology from the world-famous Dallas Theological Seminary. So just join me in welcoming Dr. Woodward as he comes now. You can help me with my DNA. Sure. Since you said we're going to learn this, right? Okay. Uh, just a little moment just for the setup. Okay. Hold your hand up real tall. I'm so glad he's tall already. <laughs> Makes visibility much easier. There you go. And this is the DNA chain, which has ATCG. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to sing the ABC song too early. Okay. And on the side are D and P. D, uh, the little white nubbins. Okay. That's a technical word for uh, deoxyribose. Okay. Uh, the sugars. There are billions of sugars in a DNA molecule. And, you know, since you've got billions of DNA molecules in your body, you guys are really sweet. Okay, you're really, really sweet. Okay, sugar, deoxyribose, D sugar, and then the P is phosphate, so PDPDP, PDPDP. That's the side that holds the letters in place, and A with T and C with G. So it's A with T and C with G held in place by D and P. Everybody got that? A with T and C with G held in place by D and P. And these little methyl tags, these thingies stick in the C letters, and they put them to sleep, put the gene to sleep. When I rest, you can see methyl tags plugged into C's. Now, I know my ATCGs, won't you come and twist with me? Are you ready? <laughs> a with T and C with G. And uh, that's a solo will work. <laughs> Held in place by D and P. Try again. A with T and C with G. Held in place by D and P. When I rest, you can see methyl tags plugged into C's. You can sing the rest. Now I know my ATCGs, won't you come and twist with me? All right, you did a great job, thank you. You set it up, so thank you, okay. See, you too can learn the alphabet of DNA. So what we're trying to do in our ministry, the C.S. Lewis Society, this is so massive. It makes me feel powerful. 
<laughs> okay, so what we're trying to do in the C.S. Lewis Society is bring light to people who live in the darkness. That's what Christian faith is all about, is the light switched on. And so as I was thinking today and praying about what I would share with this great opportunity, thank you so much, the leadership, the pastors, pastoral staff, for this rare opportunity I have. This is an amazing experience to be with you all. The Bahamas, fantastic country, a beautiful heritage. Boy, the Christian faith is very, very prominent here. And of course, Christ wants to be not just prominent, he wants to be preeminent. Amen? Supreme, numero uno, king, authority, director, emperor, all of the above would apply. And so my thought was, as I prayed about what I would do, what I would focus on, what we would try to lead to, and that is a view of Jesus Christ as the beacon, as the lighthouse by which we can direct our lives. And the difference is the lighthouse is usually out there. We're out in the sea. We were able to go to Maine. It was a gift from the Lord to do some ministry in the coast of Maine. And we visited this lighthouse, took pictures, and went up one top of one. You could really see out in the sea. We went up to another one, a couple others in the last couple of years in Maine. And lighthouses are on the shore, and you're out navigating in the sea. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ is he is the lighthouse who directs your life and keeps you away from the dangerous rocks. But this lighthouse comes inside of you and lives as the center of your being. Wow. Jesus, the beacon, the lighthouse. And that's what our purpose is. If we could go ahead and put up a few slides. I'm not going to use that many slides this morning, but I thought you'd give, give you a bit of a flavor as to what our heartbeat has been to make Jesus known. And I couldn't do it without Normandy. Thank you. If you just raise your hand, Normandy, right there. A little bit higher. <laughs> That's Normandy. And thank you so much for all you've done to enable this ministry to continue. So Christ is our beacon of truth. And if you think of the, the idea of light shining in darkness, uh, if you go back to the book of Numbers, the very end of chapter 6, Moses uh, says to Aaron, actually God says through Moses to Aaron, give this blessing to your people. The ironic blessing, turn to chapter 6 of Numbers. It's a great blessing. And I remember even singing this. The choir would sing it with a special number, and we would join in with the choir on certain occasions. The ironic blessing, one of the highlights of the Old Testament, and very vivid in terms of what we're speaking about today. Verse 22, Numbers 6.22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. And you may have heard the, the uh, actually sung the choral version. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his countenance upon, light his, make his face shine upon you. Have you ever heard that before? I don't know if you've sung that maybe in a church setting. Uh, 
But the, the power of that message is that God shines his light yet today from the very face of Jesus Christ into the hearts of men. And that's been the goal of the C.S. Lewis Society ministry. Christ, we pray, will continue to be not only the beacon of truth for the whole universe, but the beacon that guides our ministry and that guides each one of your lives and ministries. C.S. Lewis Society has been established originally on the Princeton campus. It thrived there for a number of years and went into a hibernation, kind of a uh, kind of a, a frozen in ice state. And so we thawed it out and brought it to the Florida campus there in the Tampa Bay area of Trinity College, where I was uh, brought on to teach in 1988 World Missions, and now I teach in theology, apologetics, and other areas. So the C.S. Lewis Society, our logo here, if you would click again, and I think that we'll just bring in really quickly our theme, click, click, God is real, and then click, Christ is alive. I'll just do a little motion like that. How's that? Will that work? Thank you. So God is real and Christ is alive. Christ has been raised from the dead. The, the dominant message in the book of Acts, which unleashed the incredible power of the gospel across the Roman Empire and beyond, was that God is very, very real. And you can see him in so many areas, so many avenues of investigation. And secondly, God has come to us. He's laid down his own life in the person of Christ. And he's alive. He's proven himself uh, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is alive. And then... Thank you. That's our website. If you want to visit there, you can actually see on the little video link, just go down to the bottom of the page, click videos, and you can see where we're talking about the evidence from the epigenome, this, this uh, higher layer of um, control and digital information that's added on top of the DNA. There's a, about a 12-minute 12, 12 video. It's, these are all YouTube videos. You can see me interviewing a Christian I mean, dynamic, born-again Christian professors on the Princeton campus where I was uh, blessed to receive my undergraduate in history. And these uh, guys have become um, friends. One of them has moved to Cambridge University in England. We'll, give them, we'll forgive them for that. And so, uh, but these are great men, all of them outspoken. We have an evidence of resurrection, evidence of Christ's resurrection talk embedded there as well. You can all avail yourselves of those. So we're going to uh, just mention, I'm sorry, I will not do that again. <laughs> Um, uh, the apologetics uh, focus of this weekend has been really fun for me, but it's extremely important for every Christian. It's not just a hobby, a sideline, I would say, but that it's really the core of what we're about as believers to explain the explanation and to vindicate the vindication of our Christian worldview. So this is how I define when I teach apologetics in a, in a setting, a public setting, this is how I define apologetics. You could call it just a defense of the Christian faith. But it's the explanation and vindication that is showing with good reasons and credible evidence that the Christian faith is true after all when it's under attack, when it's undergoing scrutiny or questioning. So the explanation vindication of the Christian worldview over against competing worldviews. And I know that you have many competing worldviews, even those that kind of look Christian. Some of the cults would say, we are the true Christianity. Have you ever heard a group say that? I could name them, but I don't want to get into that in this setting. But there are many, many, what we'd say, um, counterfeit faiths that want to pose as the real thing and, and, and champion uh, their prophet or their uh, revelation. And they will add something to the Christian faith. 
as opposed to just biblical Christianity, what, what C.S. Lewis liked to call mere Christianity, the core truths of our faith. I've seen, for example, in the Apostles' Creed. So we're going to take a quick look at some of the, the reasons and opportunities that you might say are on the horizon of today. I mean, right now in the last five or ten years. Uh, this young man I never met, but I got to know his dad. His dad, uh, Mr. Kilgore, graduated from Clearwater Christian College near us uh, and went off into the Army, became a chaplain, had some kids, and retired from the Army chaplaincy. His son then entered, after a short stint in the Army himself, uh, on a, a college in New York State, and he was blogging for Jesus Christ. He was witnessing to the students and even would speak up in his classes. He would argue for the truth of Christ and Christian values. And his atheist professor said, young man, you are uneducated. What do you mean? He said, you need to read Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. If you can answer that book, then we'll, then we'll talk. So the young man, without telling his dad, checked that book out of the library from the college, began reading it in the wee hours of the morning, and was clobbered. He was blasted by the rhetoric of this hardcore atheist professor, formerly a biologist, now I would say a leading atheist, for, uh, an, uh, I would say an evolutionary evangelist for atheism, uh, working from his post in England. And Richard Dawkins' book blasted and just completely shattered every area of his faith over a period of two weeks. And that reading marker, that page marker, moved progressively to the end of the book. And as he finished the book, he slipped it under his mattress, told his parents he was going to go out, do his job that day. Instead, he bought a gun and took his life. His, his only message that he had blogged about that weekend is, well, there's only, I don't believe in God or morals anymore, but I would never hurt a person or take a life. He made an exception. He took his own life. And so the father came to our conference when we were talking about the importance of getting the message out about God and about creation to a world that is seeing, having these incoming missiles from all these authors and all these scholars in the new atheism movement. We said, we are going to stand against this tide. We're going to speak out the truth from not only DNA and fossils, but every area of human learning to show that there is a God and that Christ is alive. But the good news, I think, is that if he was as fervent in his faith as I am told by all the people who knew him, that this eclipse of faith was something that blasted him temporarily, but did, could not have removed his salvation. Because you know what? When Christ died, he paid for every sin, including the sin of suicide. So his dad, when he pre presented the uh, kind of a testimony, it was very, very tough for him. But when he presented the testimony, he says, I look forward to seeing my son in heaven. I'm going to give him the biggest hug when I see him. Oh, it's so great to see you again, Jesse. And then I'm going to get a little, little slap upside the head and say, why were you not telling me about the book? That would be the second thing he does, okay, as he kind of gets the full explanation. So one, one of the things, next slide, we're going to talk about is that we believe that God is shining the light of his true, powerful creation through the things he has made. And I gave a whole seminar, actually a seminar and a half, uh, in the weekend conference on evidences in the cell. But let me just point out that this scholarly shock and awe, I, I, I would use that phrase advisedly, shock and awe about what they're finding in, this, in the cell is really, along with other nature, natural 
natural wonders, uh, wonders of nature, is shouting, I was created by a powerful and brilliant designer. That's what nature is shouting. So let's just uh, notice DNA is there in the core and the nucleus, but beyond that is something called the epigenome. If I were to bring up my laptop and say that there's information on the hard drive, you'd say, that's pretty impressive, right? What if I told you that, hey, we've just learned that there's also digital information encoded on the screen in a very subtle, almost invisible code of digits. And there's information written along the wires. And there's information embedded into the steel casing. And there's information that is in every nook and cranny of that computer. Would that impress you? It should. That's what they're finding out about our cells. There isn't just DNA in the hard drive in the little storage library compartment. There's DNA, there's information rather. There's, there's digital code arrayed everywhere in the cell in layer upon layer upon layer. And that's the so-called epigenome. But there's more. I think that we can extend our argument not just in science, but from science to other areas. I would say the first step of a, of a science sharer, and I was so excited uh, to hear about the ministry of using science here in the Bahamas. I hope to get uh, more information on that. Is the evidence points to a creator, but further than that, the evidence itself implies that a creator would reveal himself. Yes or no? If a creator made us the highest pinnacle of his creation, he probably would reveal himself to us. Yes or no? Yeah, that's logical, isn't it? Okay, if we are precious, if we are the highest of his creation, why would he turn his back and go away on a long vacation like the deists? That's deism, right? That's the worldview of Thomas Jefferson, some of the other founders, and some scientists today I know are deists. I have a brother, an older brother, who I would say is more or less, uh, at the most, a deist. Believes in God, sort of, maybe, maybe not, but if, if there is a God, he's definitely not the one that we find in the Bible. You may know people like that. That's deism. But we would say, no, a creator would be intensely interested in making himself known. Next, letter C. You start logically with the Bible. Why? Because it's uniquely prophetic. If I were to go and talk to a, a person of the Islamic faith and say, what about your Quran? What does it have for us? He might say, well, I have this beautiful poetry, and there's morals, and this and that, and final judgment, and five rules to keep. I would say, is there any absolutely confirmed, accurate prophecy in the Quran? He would have to say, well, not really. Is there any accurate, detailed prophecy that has been confirmed from the Bible? Where do we begin? From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is jam-packed. It's filled with unique prophetic statements that were confirmed over and over and over. Next, and then we call this the D point in our uh, outline, biblical prophecy you see fulfilled with 100% accuracy. That's the clincher. We're not seeing, oh, 50%, 75%. No, where it can be checked, 100%, over and over and over. These are very powerful prophecies. And last but not least, and the final step says, case for Christ himself. And this is where C.S. Lewis emphasized. He brought out the claims of Christ to be more than a mere man, but rather to be the God who made the universe. 
as he is presented in the Old and the New Testament. And of course, that is the pinnacle of Christ's beacon. He is the beacon, he is the light of the world. Did you notice that in the chapters 8 and 9 of John, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. What happens in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Where Jesus says, some of you are standing here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Eight days later, Jesus went up onto a tall mountain. Who did he take with him? Peter, James, and John. What did they see? It says they saw Jesus transformed. His light shone like a blazing fire. His, even his clothing was turned so white that even the, 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 the most powerful, you know, fuller, the cleaner in the world could not make clothing that white. And it says that at that moment, Jesus was beaming to them the reality of God in human flesh. Jesus, the light of the world, was literally blazing out light in the eyes of the disciples. He said, don't tell about this until after I was raised from the dead. And Peter, in keeping with that, did not reveal it, but he does talk about it in his, his letter, Second Peter. If we had time, we would go there. So that is our heart. That's our passion as a C.S. Lewis society. Next, we want to just take a quick mention, secondly, about the results that we have been uh, uh, shocked by as we've gone to cross-cultural ministry opportunities, including Budapest. This is the parliament, the famous parliament building. I showed it in the Sunday school class earlier. It's a beautiful building, isn't it? And it's right there on the Danube River that cuts through the middle of that uh, city of Budapest. But there, just across the river at the university, which is in downtown Budapest, I was able to give a series of talks. And one of them was on the evidence of God from the creation of the world. And this is about 1990, 91, and it was 91, and this is at the very early period of openness that you could talk about God in that country. And I met a gentleman by the name of Antal, Antal Mbeishtin. I'm meeting him here in his office. So he, he comes up to me after the first talk, and he says, Oh, very, very important information you're giving, uh, Professor Woodward. Very important, very significant. I said, what is your name? Oh, I said, my name is Antal. I'm a geologist. I said, oh, really, a geologist? Oh, I'd love to talk about science. No, no, science is very important. And I, and I didn't know where he was coming from, but I was shocked that a scientist would come to me and ask about this talk. He said, I'd like to learn more. I said, well, let's talk. You know, if we could get some time. Maybe, are you going to be here tomorrow? Yeah, I said, he said, let's talk after tomorrow's talk. So then the next day he came and somebody gave a talk on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, a different professor in our group. And he came up, he was there in the audience, where he was stroking his beard. He said, oh, it's very, very important, very significant information. I said, well, let's meet. I, I said, do you know for sure if you died today, if you would go to heaven? No, I didn't know anyone could know that. I said, well, could I meet with you? Could we talk about this? He said, yes, that would be very, very significant. I said, when could we meet? He said, well, you could come to me tomorrow afternoon. I said, where do you, do you work in here? He said, yes, I'm the director of mineralogy at the National Museum of, of Hungary. I said, ooh. He said, the guards will escort you to my office when you come. So I came the next day, much fear and trembling, and I just had... The four spiritual laws, I was mentioning that in a Sunday school class, it's a little outline, gospel outline, and I had my own English Bible, and I had this book, uh, Basic Christianity by John Stott. 
Now, I met him just a few years later. Actually, it was about over 12 years later. That's what he looks like more closer to today. But uh, as I met him in the original meeting, uh, my, my, my purpose was just to share Christ. And so I actually laid out the gospel. He had his huge office, and he brought me into a private study at the backside of it. And he said to me, he said, I have here, I found a Bible. It's in French. Do you speak French? I said, no. I said, you speak English. He said, yes. I said, could we talk in English? <laughs> he said, that's fine. So I shared some scripture with him from the English Bible. And I pointed out how he could know for sure he has eternal life in Christ and Christ alone. By trusting that God, through, through, through the plan of God, he had paid for all of Embe Ishtin Antal's sins, had been raised from the dead, and eternal life was a free gift. I said, would you like to pray today? He said, yeah, it's very, very significant. <laughs> the phrase he kept using over and over, very important. I said, well, I can lead you in prayer. I said, but you, would you rather pray yourself? He said, I think I will pray. And so he leaned over like this. And after about a half a minute, I looked up. I said, did you receive Christ? Yes, it's very important, very significant. <laughs> so uh, at the, as I d- did follow up and sent him materials, we were able to keep contact. But then what I happened is about 10 years later, I said, I've, I've lost, I can't, and my, my contact is severed. I've got to find this guy. So I went to the museum. He said, oh, he works at another museum. So he welcomed us back. We embraced, and we posed for the same. I said, I have a picture of you <laughs> a few years ago, and we posed in the same position. So God, he's, he's pursuing Christ with his family, and he's leading his family, and as a witness to the whole country of Hungary. What an amazing thing. So we can pray for him. God is at work, even in leaders of these countries. So uh, I, I want to just commission you, okay? I want to commission you to carry the light. And in doing that, I, I think I may just, just, uh, just mention we were able to go to the University of Sapienza in Rome where I did a debate. A fellow on the left side, down in the lower left corner, I showed him in Sunday school, is the head of the Evolutionary Biology Society. And he's not a very happy guy. He's pretty grumpy here because he hadn't done much research on, on evolutionary view or the, or the intelligent design side of this evolutionary biology uh, debate. So uh, let me just go ahead now and go into our... Yeah, there he is, Boncinelli. Uh, our university focus is, now I'm going to talk about how God is shining a light, and he wants to shine a light here. More blazing and bright, that beacon needs to just, uh, just explode the truth of Christ all the more, where you're living, where you're sitting, where you're interacting with people at work and in your neighborhood. Uh, the great truths of the whole universe are really found in Christ. Colossians says, in Christ are hidden all the riches of knowledge and wisdom. Think of that. In Christ are hidden all the riches of knowledge and wisdom. And the phrase, all truth is God's truth, is a great phrase. I don't know if you ever heard of that. It comes from a professor at Wheaton College in Illinois. And I think it's true to this day. Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae. You know where that uh, motto was originally found? Harvard University. Isn't that amazing? Now, they've shortened it. A couple, uh, about 200 years ago, they said, let's just go with Veritas. So on the, on the shield of Harvard Uni- for Uniter- University, it says Veritas, truth. The original meaning is the solid truth that comes from Christ, and it is for Christ and the Bible, excuse me, and for the church, Ecclesiae. Luke's et Veritas, light and truth, refers to Christ and the Bible. Do you know what that motto is? Oh, oh, what university has that motto? 
Yale University. Still on their shield to this day. And there's even a little gibberish, a strange uh, saying from the Old Testament in Hebrew. That'll be your, your trivia question to look that up on, uh, on Google search. Old and New Testament. Novum Veritas, uh, excuse me, Veteris Novum Testamentum. You know what, what university has that on their shield? Princeton University, the one where I went. I can tell you, most of the professors have very little respect for the Old or the New Testament today. It's very sad. Things have changed. But God wants to restore the Christ and the Bible focus, not only in those universities of the U.S. and the rest of the world, but in the university that sits in our heart and the hearts of those that we know. So let's take a look at this tremendous passage. It's from uh, the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 49. I have it up here so we don't have to look it up in our Bibles. Are you ready? So this is actually from the first verse, six verses. Uh, I believe it's the NIV. It might be the New American Standard, but I think it's NIV. Okay, so this is the um, fantastic passage that talks about Christ, the light of the world, the beacon of the world. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. The plot thickens. Bring in the verses. Thank you. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Now, this is a, a, a tricky moment. Because the, one of the key questions is, who is this passage talking about? All right, so... If you're doing a Bible study and you're analyzing the Bible, you've got to say, well, what does this mean? And, and so just yeah, hold it there. No, no more clicking. Thank you. Okay, so you are my servant, Israel in whom I will show my glory. So it looks like Israel is in view. And I'll go ahead and go, go, go to the conclusion. I think that Israel is in view at the beginning of this passage. I mean the nation of Israel. But I said... And I think this is Israel replying. I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. Now let's stop right there. This is a commission given to Israel to be a light to the world. Now, the word servant is very important in the book of Isaiah. Do you know what Isaiah 53, you know, the famous passage referring to Christ dying in our place? Do you know how that refers to the servant? Suffering servant. But Jesus is the servant there. But the word servant several times in the same section of Isaiah is used of Israel. So who can be the servant? Israel or the Messiah? Both of them are named as servants. Has everybody got that? Okay. It's, it's a, so if it was a multiple choice question, who is the servant? Israel, Messiah, letter C, both Israel and Messiah. What's the correct answer? Both, exactly. Both Israel and Messiah are referred to as the servant. I can give you the references in Isaiah 40, 41, and 42. They're all there. You could look them up yourself quite easily. But something is happening. God says here, at the beginning of time, I have a plan for Israel. Israel will be my worker. He will be my witness. The people of Israel will be my beacon. 
my witness to the, my uh, fantastic salvation. And so he says to Israel, you're my servant. How does Israel then reply in the midst of its task? I'm frustrated. I want to throw in the towel. Okay? I want to give up. But I guess whatever I've done will get its due reward. Okay, come to the end of the day, give me my, you know, 50 cents or my $2, whatever it is. You see? So Israel wants to throw down the baton. Have you ever seen somebody in a race and they're falling behind? Especially one of these relay races. And you know, if you're in the first or second leg and the other guys are going further and further, you feel like throwing down the baton and saying, I give up. But you stay in the race. Imagine somebody who's so discouraged that he does that, he just throws down the baton. That's what Israel did. But God had a plan. He had another runner. Jesus hops in the race. He goes up, goes over there, grabs a baton, and he's now pumping like this. You ever seen um, Chariots of Fire, the movie? Okay, anyway, godly Christian fantastic film from about 1980. Won Academy Award. That was a miracle. Okay, and, and it presents a missionary who comes back from China to run the Olympics, right? 1924, I think it was, Olympics. And Eric Little, and he had this strange running pattern. His head's back like this, and he's going like this. I've been told by scholars, that's actually how he ran. How did he ever win any Olympics? <laughs> Gold medal, I have no idea. But, but remember in the race, in that, in that film, in the race, he actually falls down. Somebody nudges him, and he falls in the dirt, and he gets back up. Well, Christ then, let's click to the next slide. Christ picks up the baton, and with great energy and exuberance, he gets in the race, and he becomes the Israel. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, notice, to bring Jacob, which is Israel, back to God, this servant is active, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. Sounds like Jesus is in the picture, doesn't it? Yeah, Jesus has taken over. He's now in view. There's a transition. He's now jumped onto the track, picked up the baton. Guess what? The people are in front of him. He's passing, he's passing, he's passing, he's passing. And as he hits the finish line, he's in first place. Jesus wins the race. Go to the next slide. He says, this is God speaking to the new servant, to Jesus. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Wow. Can you say that with me? Wow. A one, two, three. Wow. That really deserves a wow. Amen? He says, I'm not just going to give you the job of bringing Jacob of bringing Israel back to me because they're sinful, they're rebellious, they've become idolatrous, they've walked away from me. Jeremiah you know, pleads with them, chapters 1 through 10, is a, is a tear-stained, uh, a heavily tear-stained of a whole book that's tear-stained. And, and it's the tears of God flowing through Jeremiah's eyes. And he said, why have you turned away from me? I'm going to reach out to you and you still spurn me. What are you doing? This is insane. And so... God says to Christ, you are my servant. You will then not only bring back the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserve of Israel, I'll give you a more glorious task. I will make you a light to all the nations. Wow. And that's what you and I are now. 
Wait a minute. You said, well, that's Jesus' job. Well, yes, Jesus completed the race. But you know what? When he, when he was going like this with a baton that he picked up, and when his chest burst through the little rope, it's actually it's a thread, whatever it is, you know, the finish line, okay? And, you know, the cheers of the millions of people, billions, yay, Jesus. What he does is he hands you the baton, and then he turns the light on in your being. That's, that's my, not what I say. That's what Paul says in Acts. Can we turn to Acts? Yeah. And it's the first missionary journey. So as our Bibles are flipping quickly and mine too to Acts chapter 13, it's really an amazing moment. And so in verses um, 44 and beyond. Okay? So they're ministering here in uh, Pisidian Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas were, uh, excuse me, in verse 44. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. Boy, that's quite a, quite a, a big crowd. That's, that's quite that's like a Billy Graham size gathering, right? You can imagine the whole city of Nassau gathered to hear the word of God. Wow. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Do you think that made the Jews feel happy? Oh, turn to the Gentiles. You know, they probably felt like spitting in the dirt or something. For thus says the Lord, okay, thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. Huh, where did Paul get that quote from? Isaiah 49, verse 6, the very verse that we're looking at here. So Paul saw in this verse not only a prophecy that Jesus would grab up the cast-aside task of, of Israel to be a witness, and that Jesus became the new Israel, the new power witness. He not only did that, but as I mentioned a moment ago, he finished the race and then tossed you or handed to you and me the baton, the torch, the light, the beacon. And he says, you see, Paul saw implied in there not just a suggestion but a command. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Verse 47, for thus the Lord has what? Commanded. One thing about a command is that it's really not an option. God says you must do this, which we can accept with joy. We can say, wow, I get to be a light to others? That's a blessing. That's not an art. Well, it'll involve some work and some study and some preparation and some time carved out, but... I'm used for an eternal blessing to others that the light of truth, which not only covers physics and biology and chemistry and sociology and political theory and philosophy and history and anthropology and a zillion other fields, all that's part of God's truth blasted out when filtered through scripture and carefully evaluated. He brings the most important truth, which is the truth of 
salvation, the truth of Christ. That's at the pinnacle of that pyramid. And so he says, I hand you the baton. And did Paul accept that? Yes, with humble joy and with prayer and with godly spiritual preparation through Scripture. That's what this church is all about, amen? He's preparing you. The Lord is preparing you through this church to be His light to the Gentiles, to Bahamas and beyond. His light that should bring, as it were, the salvation message to the world. You're part of the world and all parts of the world. And so we are woven into the message of Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. The beacon of Christ is now in our hands. The word of God is our, if you want to use um, Star Wars imagery, our lightsaber. I don't do a very good imitation. I actually have a cell phone. I have to turn it off. I'm probably going to be charged $1,000 for data download. I'm in another country. But if I had my cell phone, I would turn on my little lightsaber app. It makes a lightsaber sound. Our grandson, we have these little lightsaber toys. So when he comes over, he's four years old, he says, Poppy, can I play lightsabers? I can guarantee when he walks in the door. First, can we play lightsabers? I said, sure. And I go, he said, can you do the sound effect? I said, okay. It's kind of fun. And he's, uh, and it's not uh, you know, Darth Vader. Neither of us is Darth Vader. But um, and we're just practice. Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and Luke Skywalker, right? Okay. So what I'm trying to say is we have the power weapon of all time and all eternity, and it's the Word of God, guaranteed to cut through the lies of Satan. And I think that we can supplement that with DNA and archaeology and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the fact that a Jewish named Pichas Lapid has said he thinks that the resurrection actually happened. That's another whole talk I give. A Jewish scholar recently, not that long ago, published a book saying, I think the evidence is overwhelming. Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, he hasn't become a, Gen- I mean, hasn't become a Messianic Jew. He says, Jesus is a special uh, messenger for the Gentiles. Whatever. <laughs> but we can still point out that he saw the evidence as overwhelming and on and on and on. There's so many apologetic little feeder discussion points, right? Lines of evidence can bring people to that beacon of Jesus Christ, who is the source of strength and the source of hope, the source of eternal comfort. And as people see that source blaze out in a, in a gusher of joy and contentment, even in troubled times, and as you and I trust in the Lord, then he will then open that pathway that we can carry that baton. And then we can hand it to others. And they can become, again, the next beacon bearer. Jesus is our source of life, our source of love, our source of light to a dark world. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our lover, our leader, our king, our savior, and our light in the world. The one who's handed us the torch, the beacon. Pray that you would help us to be faithful as we hand this precious message on to others and train them and teach them and encourage them for your glory and for the eternal salvation of many. In Jesus' name, amen.